answer the question today, why Bethlehem? Everybody look at your neighbor and say, why Bethlehem? Why in the world, out of all the cities and places God could have chose, did he pick Bethlehem? So we're going to talk about that today because it is profound, it is prophetic, and it is absolutely incredible. So I'm, I'm very excited. Say, poke your neighbor and say, God, God's got a word for you today. Yeah, poke your other neighbor and say, Pastor's going to preach a word to you today. Amen. Everybody say, it is on. Yes, amen. Praise God. Luke chapter 2, we're going to read verses 1 through 7. And if you've been in church very long, you're very familiar with this portion of Scripture. Hopefully you read it during Christmas. We've always read the Christmas story before kids open presents and all that. We always want to make sure Christ is first. The Bible says in Luke chapter 2, verse 1 through 7, it came to pass. In those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered or taxed. Uh, this census was first took place when while Quirinius was governing Syria and all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with him. Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered, to deliver her baby. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the end. There was no vacancy. I'm going to really flesh that out next week. But Father, thank you so much for today and thank you for your presence. Thank you for reminding us through the beautiful music. That you are, in fact, Emmanuel, God with us. God, when we go through our deepest valleys, you are there with us. When we're on the mountaintop, you are there with us. We're in the land of in between, you are there with us. When we're believing for our promises, you are there with us. When we have bad diagnosis from doctors, you are there with us. When the bill collector calls and we don't have the funds, you are there with us. God, you are God with us. You never bail on us when times get tough. You are the reason for this season. And I thank you, Father, for dying on that cross to save our souls. I pray, God, for the next little bit that you would anoint me to speak forth your word in, 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 in power and in deed, not just in word and tongue only. I pray every word comes straight from the throne of God into our hearts, God, and flood our souls with the, with the power of change, God. Transform us into your image. Lord, we pray, God, for all of the shenanigans that goes on throughout the United States. And I ask you to bring a great revival. God, we pray for the peace of Jerusalem and Israel in the name of Jesus, Father. God, give her peace on all sides as your word instructs. And Lord, I pray now, God, let this seed fall in the good soil of our heart and grow and bear forth fruit in our lives. In the name of Jesus, we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Hold your Bibles up in whatever form you have and let's boldly declare, Father... Today, this week, by your grace, I'm going to be a doer of your word and not a hearer only, deceiving my own self. Now, Lord, anoint my ears, anoint my heart, anoint my spirit, my soul, my mind, and my body to receive the truth of your word. In Christ's name I pray. Amen, amen. High five two or three people as you're being seated. Hallelujah, hallelujah. 
typical of last-minute Christmas shoppers. Your mother was running furiously and frantically from store to store to try to get in those last-minute packages. And uh, as she was flying through one store, she suddenly realized she no longer had the pudgy little hand of her three-year-old son and went into near hysterics. In a panic, she looked around and couldn't find her little son, so she began to retrace her steps. And finally, she found him with his little nose plastered up against a frosty window looking at a manger scene. Hearing his frantic mother, uh, hysterical mother, calling his name, he with innocent glee just looked at her and said, Look, Mommy, it's Jesus. Baby Jesus in the hay. He was all excited. She comes storming over there, jerked him up by the hand and jerked him away from the window. And she said, We don't have time for that. And sadly, that is exactly the way many people view Christmas. Jesus is the real reason for the season. And if we're not careful, we get so sidetracked in the materialism and all the parties and all the family functions that we'll forget the whole thing we're celebrating. And that is that Jesus came to this earth to die for you and I so that he could be God with us. Amen. I'm not saying don't go out and shop or buy Christmas presents or have parties or have family functions. What I'm saying is let's remember the whole reason and the whole deal behind it is that Jesus, we're here to remember Jesus came to this earth. Now, I don't want to bust your bubble, but Jesus was probably about a 99.9% sure he was born around September in the fall of the year, not December 25th. But that's okay. We still need a day to celebrate his birth. What I'm saying is, let's remember the real reason for the season, uh, and that is that Jesus came to die for us. How many of you are glad about that? Amen. Amen. Praise God. Instead of being stressed out about all the wrong things and distracted from the right things, let's keep Jesus the reason for the season. Here's what I've been praying for us as a church, that we would have joy this Christmas season. That we would not have depression and distraction. That we would not feel over-stressed and over-anxiety. But just to have the joy of the season. When's the last time you just simply enjoyed Christmas? Amen. He came to this earth to be born of the Virgin Mary. Not so we could materialize things. But so we could remember He is our Savior. He's the deal. And He chose to be born in a little town called Bethlehem. Everybody shout out Bethlehem. And it's not by happens chance, but by divine appointment. Now, Bethlehem is located roughly five to seven miles south of Jerusalem. Uh, today, it's very much a suburb, if you will. You really can't tell when you go from Jerusalem to Bethlehem because it's all one big, long area. But back then, in those days, it was a very small, insignificant little town. As a matter of fact, at the time Jesus was born, most theologians and historians record that it was roughly about 150 people in the town altogether. We're talking no stoplight type little town in South Georgia. That's what we're talking about here. 150 people, there are no crossroads. There are no notable resources. In fact, it's so small and insignificant that your Bible in Joshua 15 and Nehemiah 11 leaves it out as a city of Judah. <laughs> the Bible doesn't even record it in there in certain books of the Bible as it's listing cities in Judah. It is a nothing little ghost town, if you will. It was a quiet shepherding community, but it had some great history. 
It was roughly 12, 15 miles to the south was a beautiful town, a beautiful city called Hebron. People like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were associated with Hebron. In fact, King David was first anointed king. Uh, well, he's first anointed king of Bethlehem, but he became king of Hebron before he moved to Jerusalem. Ten miles northwest was Gibeon, where Joshua commanded the sun to stand still in the valley of Ilon, and they defeated the enemy there. Twelve miles to the west was Soko, where David defeated Goliath in the valley of Elah. Six miles northwest was Jerusalem, which was God's age-old city to reveal himself to the world. The very center of life as we know it. As a matter of fact, if you look at a world map on a wall, you will find that Israel is smack dab in the middle of that map always because Jerusalem was the center of the world. That's where God chose to reveal himself to mankind. So why was so many other locations to choose from? Why would God choose a little old Bethlehem? I mean, you and I know the story that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. But back in those days, why did he pick that? What happened here? Of all the cities and villages and towns in Palestine, of all the mega cities, of all the little towns, of anywhere he could have chose, why did he pick Bethlehem? Because the greatest figure in human history was born and birthed there in Bethlehem, and that is Jesus Christ. My question is why? God doesn't just do things by happens chance. God doesn't just wave something and say, well, that looks good to me. He doesn't take suggestions from an angel that says, I don't know, Bethlehem looks good. And God didn't sit up there and go, yeah, you know what, I don't have anything better. Let's go with Bethlehem. There's a purpose behind it. Why is that? There's a lot of important reasons to favor other locations. As we said, the city of Hebron would have been a great place to pick for Jesus to be born. Because it's associated with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. As I said, King David was, was, became king first there for the first seven years of his reign. It would have been a, a good choice, if you will. An even better choice would have been Jerusalem. Even more logical. 611 times Jerusalem is mentioned in the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, from the time David conquered it from the Jebusites, it became the city, uh, the center, if you will, of, of civil life, social life, religious life. It became the metropolis of Israel. It became the place where Solomon built the magnificent temple and the palace was. I mean, Jerusalem would be a great city to choose from, but it didn't make the cut. Not even Nazareth. Maybe Nazareth would have been a good one. Why? Because that's where Joseph and Mary were from. And it would make sense because the life could go on. There'd be no interruptions. They had family to help. They had all kinds of things that could work. But yet again, it wasn't. So why Bethlehem? By the ancient prophet's own words, Bethlehem was small among the clans of Judah. As I said, not even mentioned in some of the books of the Old Testament. For whatever reason, it never rose to prominence. And the only thing we can really find other than Jesus being born there that's got any kind of substantial uh, uh, to it at all is King David was born there. He shepherded there. He wrote many psalms there. He came from that area. And two, the, the beautiful story of Ruth. Ruth and Boaz and their romance and all that happened there. But for the most part, Bethlehem... Just went from decade to decade, century to century, and not much happened there. It was just a normal little shepherding town that not a lot went down. Jesus was not born in any political 
commercial, cultural, educational, or socially significant town of the day. And I think that speaks to who he came to save. He didn't pick the grand cities. He didn't pick the educational or the religious elite. He picked a small, insignificant, nothing town, I believe, to show the world that he came to save all mankind. So why Bethlehem? Point number one is this. Everybody pay point number one. It had historic associations. What do I mean by that? It was where Bethlehem, where Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife, was buried. Look at Genesis 35, 16 through 19. Then they moved on from Bethel while they were still some distance from Ephratah. Rachel began to give birth and had great difficulty as she was having great difficulty in childbirth. The midwife said to her, don't despair, for you have another son. As she breathed her last... For she was dying. She named her son Benoni. But his father named him Benjamin. So Rachel died and was buried on the way to Ephratah. That is Bethlehem. So she's giving birth to her youngest son. And as she gives birth to her youngest son, she says, name him Benoni. And I find this interesting. It means uh, son of my sorrows. But Jacob, the father, comes in and says, no, we're not naming him son of my sorrows. We're going to name him Benjamin, which means the son of my right hand. And I love this because what they didn't realize in Genesis was they were being prophetic. They were prophetically speaking of what was going to happen some 1900 to 2000 years later. There would be a son according to Isaiah that's born named Jesus who is called the man of sorrows. So I want to tell you something here today. If you've got sorrow in your life, Jesus is well acquainted with that. The Bible says he has captured all of our sorrows. And he is there. If you have tears in your eyes, if you have sorrow in your heart this Christmas season, he is the man of sorrows. Woo! Aren't you glad that he just doesn't accept us when we come in and everything is all together? Aren't you glad that Jesus is there for us when all the chips are down? Aren't you glad he's there for us when the doctor gives you a horrible report? Aren't you glad he's there for you when that boyfriend or girlfriend breaks up with you? Aren't you glad he is there for you when you're crying in the night and nobody else sees it? Somebody shout hallelujah. Hallelujah. On the other hand, Jacob said, no, we're going to name him Benjamin, the son of my right hand. Romans declares that Jesus is sitting at the Right hand of God. Do you know what a right hand represents? It represents, it represents power and it represents authority. I love that Jesus is there and he fills all the gaps. Prophetically, what they didn't realize in Genesis was roughly 2,000 years ago, God would send his only son to not only be acquainted and help you through your sorrows, but also give you the power and give you the authority to overcome every obstacle in this life, every doctor's report, every negative obstacle, everything. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. It's also prophetic in nature that says, hey, he started as a man of sorrows, but he's the son of the right hand. You may come to Jesus full of sorrows, full of problems, full of issues. But when Jesus is done with you, you'll walk in power. You'll walk in authority. You'll walk in victory. You will be more than a conqueror. You will triumph in Christ Jesus. There will be no weapon formed against you shall prosper. Oh, I come to preach to somebody today and tell you, he not only is the reason for the season, but he has given you and I authority. He said, all power and authority I have, I give to you. 
Woo! Hallelujah! Man, it was also the home of Ruth and Boaz. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, went to dwell in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife was Naomi. And the names of the two sons were Malon and Chilion, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to the country of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left and her two sons. Now they took wives of the women of Moab. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. And they dwelt there about ten years, and both Malon and Chilion also died. So the woman survived her two sons and her husband. Verse 6 and 7, Then she arose with her daughter-in-law, that she might return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the country of Moab that the Lord had visited his people by giving them bread. Everybody say bread. I'm going to get to that in a little bit. Therefore she went out from the place where she was, and her two daughter-in-laws with her, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. Boy, I love this. While in Bethlehem, Ruth is over gleaning in a field, and that is where she met a man named Boaz, who became her kinsman redeemer. Ruth 4, 10-13. Moreover, I have acquired Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, to be my wife in order to raise up the name of the deceased of his inheritance. So that the name of the deceased will not be cut off from his brothers or from the court of his birthplace. You are witnesses today. Verse 11. All the people who were in the court and the elders said. We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. Leah, Both of whom built the house of Israel. And may you achieve wealth in Ephrata and become famous in Bethlehem. Moreover, may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar bore to Judah through the offspring which the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. But Ruth was, was in Bethlehem, and Boaz became her kinsman redeemer. In those days, those widows had no shot, basically. They were almost, they were left to fend for themselves. They were on their own, and they were not, the prognosis or their, their projections for their life were not very good. Along comes Boaz, a near kinsman redeemer, and redeems her. I love this. Little did they know that roughly 2,000 years later, that there would be another kinsman redeemer that would be born in the city of Bethlehem that would come. Little did we know we were Ruth. We were the one that needed saving. We were the one that was hopelessly lost. We were the one that couldn't do it on our own. We were the one that was out and left to ourselves. And Jesus came to the city of Bethlehem and basically said, just like Ruth got a kinsman redeemer, woo, you're going to get a kinsman redeemer. Hallelujah. First Peter 1 Peter 1.18-19 says, Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless the blood of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I came to Christ, I was filled with emotional wounds. I had all kinds of addictions. I was messed up in the head. From the floor up to the top of my head, I was tore up and not in a good way. And I was lost. And when I came to Jesus, he redeemed me. 
His blood washed my sin away. I was born again into new life. Man, I wish somebody would catch this. When I was hopelessly lost, I found my way to a man that was born in Bethlehem that said, I'm not only going to be Ruth's kinsman redeemer, I'm going to be your redeemer. Woo, is anybody excited about that this Christmas? So why Bethlehem? Well, it was also to identify with King David. Israel's greatest earthly king was born and anointed there. Both in Ru- Bo- Boaz and Ruth had a romance. They had got married. He redeemed her. They had a son named Obed who had a son named Jesse who had a son named David. David became the greatest Old Testament king that there was. They still consider him the greatest king of Israel. Obviously, Jesus is. But in the Old Testament, for sure, David. And the Messiah, according to scriptures, would be a son of David born in the city of David. It's called the Davidic Covenant. I don't want to get into a long, drawn-out thing here, but let me just share a couple of scriptures with you about that. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, God speaking to David, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Everybody say forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Bethlehem became known as the city of David. And what Jesus being born in Bethlehem tied him to the city of David. He was the son of David. His throne would last forever and ever and ever and ever and never go out. He wasn't an establishing an earthly throne. He was a kingdom throne, an eternal one. That we live with him forever and ever and ever. In fact, in Luke 2.11, For there is born to you in the day of the city of David. Everybody say the city of David. A Savior who is Christ the Lord. Even the angels were calling it the city of David. He was tying him to David. It was not by mistake or coincidence that Caesar Augustus threw out at the time he did for all the world to be taxed. Now, you want me to tie history to Caesar Augustus? Let me tell you who Caesar Augustus was because most church members, most Christians don't even know who he was. Julius Caesar was stabbed Many times by his friends and even Brutus, his best friend. And that's where you get the saying, et tu Brute. As Julius Caesar was killed, he left in his will for his great nephew to reign and take over for him. It was his adopted heir named Octavius. Octavius was Octavian. Octavian, there was civil war after Julius Caesar died, and Octavian won the battle. Of all the generals you would know and recognize, he defeated Mark Antony and Cleopatra last. He became sole authority over Rome, and Octavian took the name Caesar Augustus. Your Bible declares that the great nephew of Julius Caesar was the one who sent the whole world to be taxed, and it wasn't by happenstance. Here's my point in this. The Bible says that in Luke 2, 1, he sent for all the world to be taxed. Do you know what this, why is so important? God took a pagan king who did not have any covenant with him, who didn't know nothing about God and didn't care about God, and he sent him to accomplish his will. Guess what that means for you and I? God can use anyone, and God can use anything to accomplish his will. Somebody say a good amen. 
He can talk through donkeys. He can use pagan kings like Octavian. He can use anybody and anything to direct you to where you need to be to accomplish his mission on this earth. Somebody say amen. Do you know what that means to us? While we're in this theater right now, who knows what God is doing behind the channels using people that don't know Him, that don't profess Christianity, that have never been to church to put us where we need to be. I believe this. See, I believe this. Caesar Augustus, without realizing it, was playing right into the hands of what God wanted. His time frame. One little elderly lady couldn't afford to buy groceries. She was dirt poor. And someone kept dropping groceries at her front door, and she would get it. And this was back before the days of air conditioning, and the windows were open. And she'd dance around, and she'd praise God and say, thank you for the groceries. Thank you for providing my needs. Well, the atheist next door had about all he could stand. He was tired of hearing about God. He was tired of her giving glory. So one day he went to the store and bought groceries. Laying them at her door, knocked on the door, and hid in the bushes. She'd come out like clock. Well, oh, praise you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for the groceries. Thank you for providing my needs. Well, he pops out of the, out of the bushes, and he says, ha, ha, the joke's on you. God didn't buy you those groceries. I've been telling you there ain't no God. I went to the store, and I got those groceries. Now, how do you feel? I told you, ha, ha, ha. She, without even stopping, without even blinking an eye, she said, thank you, Lord, for providing my groceries. Thank you for giving me my knees, and thank you for sending the devil to deliver them. <laughs> Mary and Joseph were both from the line of David, so Jesus was double covered as far as coming through the line of David. So they made the journey some 70 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. If you've been with me to Israel, you know what that was like on foot and donkey. They get there just at the right time for her to give birth. The timing of God was perfect. Listen, the timing of God is going to be perfect with what you've been praying. The timing of God is going to be perfect with the house you're trying to buy. The timing of God is going to be perfect with your marriage. With the relationship you're looking for. The timing of God is going to be perfect with your breakthrough. With our church's breakthrough. The timing of God is going to be perfect with wherever God is sending us. And whatever building he has in store for us. The timing of God is going to be perfect with your freedom. And with your deliverance. And with your liberty. Somebody say amen. The timing of God is going to be perfect for you to conceive a child. And to begin to have a family. Man I'm preaching to somebody. The timing of God will absolutely be perfect. But here's the deal. Mary and Joseph are on this road to Bethlehem. And I'm sure, listen, I don't, listen, nine months pregnant. I want to see women show hands. How many of you would like to be ready to birth this baby at nine months? And your husband says, we got to go 70 miles and you might get a donkey, you might walk. Yeah, the men are laughing. Careful, guys. <laughs> you could get abused in here today. 70 miles. I'm sure Mary is probably not overwhelmed with joy. I'm sure about halfway there, she's probably fa la 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 la. I'm sure she's complaining along the way. I'm sure she's probably thinking, this is great. 
Not only am I going to be down there, I'm probably going to have this baby down there. All my family's in Nazareth. Mama won't be there with me. Grandmama won't be there with me. None of my family is going to be there with me to have this baby. My goodness gracious, I've never even been to Bethlehem. I'm sure she's seeing it as a negative, and the thought in her mind is not even crossing. Wait a minute, God's got his hand in this. I have a question. What are you going through right now that you're complaining, whining, praying for God to change, and God is saying, you don't even realize I'm directing you exactly where you need to be doing exactly what you need to be doing. You don't even realize it's going right, and the timing of my, his timing is perfect. Somebody say amen. Do you believe this? They get there, and now not only are they there, there's no room in the end. I'm going to talk about no vacancy next week. There's no room, probably because the family's looking at her pregnant out of wedlock and thinking, you ain't coming in my house. So now they go to this stable with animals, and I'm thinking, Mary's thinking, wait a minute. You said I was going to birth the Savior of this world. This feels like anything but your will, God. Listen. Be very careful in diagnosing something in your life as not his will. You may be in the perfect will of God and you don't feel anything. I'm sure she didn't feel like jumping up and down as she's there. She's probably looking at Joseph saying, what in the world is going on here? I want you to fix this. And I can see Joseph knocking on every door. Him coming back with beats of sweat on his head saying, honey... I did the best I could, but I, this is it. What do you say? I remember when we had our first baby. Holly just had a contraction really bad, and she grabbed my, and, and when she squeezed my hand, it dug my ring into my fingers. And I was just, I was like, you know, and so finally she let it go, and I was like, ow. She said, what? I said, you're digging my ring in my finger. She said, then take it off. <laughs> yes, ma'am. That's your only answer at that point, folks. So she gives birth to Jesus in a manger. And the tradition of the Jews is that the same area that Jesus was born is the same area in which Boaz and Ruth and King David both lived. The same actual area. That's amazing to me. So both patriarchs of the Old Testament lived in the same area Jesus was born. As a matter of fact, when the romance happened between Boaz and Ruth was roughly 1,100 years later. And they conceived and born Obed who did Jesse and David. And the same area, Jesus came forth to this world. There, it's Jesus, God was tying it all together. As a matter of fact, a mile east of Bethlehem was the field of Boaz. Where she gleaned. And just next to that was the shepherd's field. Where the shepherds and the angels announced to the shepherds that, hey, Jesus was born there in the town of Bethlehem. It all ties together. Jesus is the son of David. Matthew 9, 27 says this. Watch what it says. When Jesus departed from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Son of David, have mercy on us. They were recognizing Jesus is the Messiah. Romans 1.3 regarding his son as to who his earthly life was a descendant of David. So not only was it a, did it have historical associations, not only was he tied with King David, it was also to fulfill prophecy. Everybody say fulfill prophecy. Now this is huge right here. Look what Micah said in Micah 5.2. But you Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, 
Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose going forth are from old, from everlasting. This is a miraculous prediction because it was made 700 years before Jesus was born. Folks, there's a lot of Old Testament scriptures and prophecies that are cryptic in nature. But God was very precise in where Jesus would be born. Why? So the shepherds would know where to find him. So the magi would know where to locate him. You say, oh, I got you, pastor. They followed the star. Yes, they did. They followed the star right into Jerusalem. And they asked in the palace, hey, what's the deal about the king? And the Bible scholars of the day said, oh, he's born in Bethlehem about seven miles from here. God will speak to you in exact details for your life because he's a God who loves you. Listen, if you need answers for any area of your life, if you'll ask God, he will give you the answers. God still speaks. Someone say amen. God still speaks. Poke to your neighbor and say he still speaks. Listen, he'll tell you where to apply for a job. He'll tell you where to rent an apartment or buy a home. He'll tell you who to marry. I had one girlfriend besides Holly, and she broke my heart, and I just sat around for two weeks mourning and heartbroken, and I thought, who in the world in the right mind would want to continue to do this? This is the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Honest to goodness. I said, this is stupid. This is retarded. I will never date again until I know that's my wife. That was my plea. And do you know, a year and a half later, before I went on the first date with her, before I felt released to ask her out, I was sitting studying with her, not thinking anything and I still don't know why the Lord spoke to me because I wasn't exactly walking tight with him but he spoke to me and he said that's your wife yeah I was like yeah Woo! good one Lord good one And I felt comfortable to ask her. I never told her that until after we were married. And one day after we were married, I told her. And you know what she said? She said, it's the funniest thing. She said, that same night, I thought I could spend the rest of my life with this guy. God will do it. Amen. Listen, if you're looking for a mate, you don't have to date 25 people. All you got to do is wait for God to point them out. It works. Amen. Somebody say amen. He'll guide you to where and when to buy that car. He'll lead you where to live. He'll tell you where to put your kids at school. He'll direct you to the very things you need to do. If you will seek God, I need to hear somebody hear this. Whatever you have questions for, God is a God that cares so much about your life. He cares so much about you. He will give you the answers. He will give you the details. He'll lay it all out if you'll just trust Him and listen for His voice. Can I get a witness? Has anybody been there before? He'll tell you where to go to church. He'll tell you where to move, folks. Listen, you don't move where the job tells you to go. You go where the Holy Spirit tells you to go. And finally, the last point, why Bethlehem? This is my favorite part of the whole message. It was symbolic. Bethlehem literally means house of bread. Ephratah means fruitfulness. Beth means house, lay of, and ham means bread. The house of bread. Man, who even, in the book of Ruth it says, Naomi heard there was bread back in the house of bread. 
Oh, I come to tell somebody there's bread. Woo! Back in the house of bread. Bread is one of the life's most common things. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you the details on this in just a second. But watch this. Who is the bread of life? John chapter 6 verse 31 says this. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. Oh, I love this. Verse 33 through 35. For the bread of God is not that which comes down out of heaven, but and gives, for the bread of God is, excuse me, that which comes down out of heaven and gives life. To the world. Then they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to him, I am the bread of life. Who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. And a little bit later in that chapter, in verse 47 through 51, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes it has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Poke your neighbor and say, Jesus is the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I give for the life of the world is my flesh. What he was saying was, hey, what you didn't know was 2,000 years ago. Uh-huh. Ruth and them said they were going back to the house of bread because there was bread back there. And what Jesus said is, I am the fulfillment of that. I am the bread of life. What does bread do? It satisfies. It strengthens. It gives you nourishment. And what he was saying was, hey, I was born in the house of bread and I'm the bread of life. Woo! He was born to take care of our spiritual hunger. Many are eating at the wrong table. Listen, Jesus is a good comparison. Bread is to Jesus because he satisfies, he strengthens, he fulfills, he nourishes. Every day we need normal bread for our physical bodies. And every day we need spiritual bread for our spirit man. Only Christ can satisfy the eternal dimension of the human spirit. Listen. He's the fulfillment of the prophecies hundreds of years later. He was born a son of David in the city of David. He was born bread in the house of bread. <sighs> Plain and simple, he is Lord. And he chose Bethlehem, a little seemingly insignificant town. Why? 1 Corinthians answers it. Chapter 1, verse 27 through 29. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. He wanted to know all of us that he's available to all. He wasn't born in a grand city and the grandeur of city life so that those of us born in small or insignificant places could be excluded. He wasn't born in a palace, but in a manger, an animal feeding trough. He represents bread, the most common food back then. He was announced not to the king, Herod, and all the, the highfalutins of Jerusalem, but rather to the shepherds. What am I trying to say? You don't have to be from somewhere to know Jesus. You don't have to have it all together. 
You don't have to have prominence and be royalty and be kings to accept him. You don't have to do all this because he didn't just come for just them. He came for the ordinary people like us. That's why he chose Bethlehem. That's why he was of the, of, the, of the city of David. That's why he was bred. He was basically saying, I am here for everyone. Somebody shout amen. amen. The fact that he was born in the house of bread shows us God chose us to be his children. No, how, no matter how insignificant we see ourselves or the world sees us. Philip Brooks was a burned out, distraught preacher of his time. He was known as being the most dynamic and influential preacher of his day. He was the man that Harvard would call on to preach. In his mid-twenties, he pastored the Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia, which was the church of churches. And he went there. He hired a man named Lewis Redner, a super salesman, to be his Sunday school superintendent and his organist. And the church exploded with growth. They started with 30 children. By the end of the year, they had 1,000. The numbers increased. Harvard University wanted him to be the sole preacher, but he declined. He regularly prayed and said things like the quote you'll see on the overhead. Do not pray for easy lives, but pray to be stronger men. Do not pray for tasks equal to your powers, but pray for your power to be equal to your task. Then the accomplishing of your work shall be no miracle, but you shall be a miracle. Every day shall wonder at yourself and the richness of life, which has come to you by the grace of God. But then the Civil War happened, and as he's pastoring his church, the whole national spirit was just demoralized. Sunday after Sunday, parishioners came in, women, wearing all black crime because that week their husband or their son had been killed. It radically ravished the entire nation. He tried desperately to encourage his church. He tried desperately to, to get through and, and to bring joy and encouragement and help them through this time, but it was to no avail. Can you imagine Sunday after Sunday? Showing up here wondering, which of you women's going to be wearing all black because your son was just killed? And every Sunday they wailed and they mourned and he could not keep up. No matter how bad he tried to get his fervor and his fire up, it just waned to nothing. He was a great orator. He, was, he, was, he got through the end of the Civil War. He thought, well, maybe my fire will come back. Maybe joy will run through the land again. And only it got worse. Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. And, and our nation was in shambles. Can you imagine trying to encourage a church with hope. And everybody's losing family members in a war that should have never happened. He threw his hands in the air. Nothing he could do to get his fire back. And finally he went to his church. He said, I can't do this anymore. I I got to have a break. They sent him on sabbatical later at the end of that year. He chose to leave the United States and go to Israel. In Israel, he was on Christmas Eve in Jerusalem, and he got him a horse, and he set off towards Bethlehem. As he set off towards Bethlehem, he got into the 
to the little town there, Bethlehem, which at that time was about 150. It was about the, exactly what it was at the time of Christ. As he rode in, the dusk had just fallen and he could begin to see the stars. The night had fallen. It lifted his spirits. As he rode into that town, he rode in and he saw the church in the nativity. And they were worshiping God and they were singing beautiful songs of how Jesus had come to the earth. He was so touched. He was so moved by God. He felt his fire return. He felt his hope return. He felt the spirit revived. And he later wrote about his horseback journey from Jerusalem. Where he assisted in the midnight service at Christmas Eve 1865. And he said, I remember standing in the old church in Bethlehem. Those of you who've been to Israel, you've been here. Close to the spot where Jesus was born. And the whole church was ringing hour after hour with splendid hymns of praise to God. He said, how again and again it seemed as if I could hear voices I knew well. Telling each other of the wonderful night of the Savior's birth. And on that Christmas Eve night, at the thought of Jesus coming to bear his sins and to restore him and revive him. He was revived. It was as if the spirit fanned the flame within him and hope had registered again and his spirit came alive again. When he came back home, he decided, I need to write something about it. And he put pen to paper and he penned the words to the song we know well, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And Lewis Redner, his school Sunday school superintendent and organist, put the tunes to it and we sing to this day. Little did we know that it was that song he wrote and was birthed out of God reviving him. Woo! I'd like for you to bow your heads and close your eyes. Folks, if you are feeling burned out in life, if you're tired of trying to do things in your own strength, if you're spiritually hungry, He is the bread of life. All you have to do is receive Him. If you need a miracle, put your trust in Jesus, the miracle worker. This Christmas today, receive the greatest gift you will ever receive. Jesus Christ, the bread of life. 